and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast, a podcast aimed at making your quilting life more fun and creative while connecting with quilters just like you. Join the staff of the magazines you love for a great episode filled with tips and tricks. Enjoy! Hi, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm Lindsay Mayland, and I'm so happy to be here with you. On today's episode, we'll chat our best tips for pressing your fabrics and do a Q&A with Tara Curtis, a pattern designer and the inventor of Wefty Needle. We'll also give sewing storage hacks from your kitchen, give the history of pin cushions, and share stories of quilters making a difference in their communities. Let's dive in. Pressing well makes a big difference in your finished quilt's appearance. And when you're making a quilt, we can promise that you'll be doing a lot of it. From pressing seams of every unit, to every block, to every row, to your quilt top, it's impossible to move to the next step in your pattern without pressing your pieces. I'm here with Allison, the designer of Quilts and More today, to share the secrets to pressing like a pro. All right, so first things first, press, do not iron. Are you confused about the difference? Ironing involves moving the iron while it's in contact with the fabric, which can stretch and distort the fabrics and seams. Pressing means picking up the iron off the surface of the fabric and putting it back down in another location. So one of my favorite pressing tips is to use a wool pressing mat. They're typically about a half inch thick and very dense, so they provide a nice sturdy surface for pressing. I have a small wool mat, so I just place it on my ironing board when I'm ready to use it. I find that it really comes in handy when working with smaller pieces, but you can really use it for any block size. And I think the great thing about wool pressing mats is it lets the heat go all the way through so that you're really getting heat from both sides when you're pressing, so Mm -hmm. it really makes your seams lie flatter. And even if you're using it for ironing your fabrics before starting, it really can help get out like stubborn creases. Yes, you know, sometimes I tend to use starch, but with the wool pressing mat, I find that I don't really need to use it as much. It's amazing. Awesome. Okay, tip number two is to set your seams. Before pressing a seam open or to one side, first just press the seam as it was sewn without opening up the fabric pieces. Doing so helps like meld or sink the stitches into the fabric, which leaves you with a less bulky seam allowance when you finally do press it open or to one side. So if you've never done this, it's an amazing trick. I especially found that my triangle squares or units weren't turning out the exact right size. And the pressing can definitely be the issue. And thread, especially if you're using a thicker thread, can take up a little more space in your seam so you're not getting an exact quarter inch seam and it doesn't press completely open. So if you just iron your seam flat first, it can really help get the thread sunk into the fabric so everything presses smoothly. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure your quilt is going to last forever. Absolutely. All right, so next you're going to want to make sure whatever you're pressing, you're going to leave it to cool. Once the fabric pieces have been pressed, just let them sit there and cool off so they're no longer warm. This prevents distortion of bias edges. So I'm kind of a fanatic when it comes to getting really smooth, flat fabric. I personally think pressing can make or break the look of your overall quilt. 
And like Lindsay said, we do it every step of the way. Um, so when I'm ready to cut fabrics, I make sure they're pressed nice and smooth without any wrinkles. And I like to use starch for this. Um, it helps add some stability when cutting so things aren't shifting too much. And after pressing the fabrics, I like to just leave them on my ironing board to cool for a minute before I pick them up because I don't want to undo all the hard work I just put into getting all those wrinkles out. Exactly. So tip four is to finger press first. So finger pressing isn't a substitute for using an iron at all, but it does temporarily press a seam in one direction or other, which can make it easy to press your seams um, to one side. It's also a really good method to use if you're unsure about which way your seam should be pressed. It helps you just kind of see how it's laying, if it's flat, how it would work with other units so you can make that decision. Mm -hmm. Next, you want to avoid seeing seam shadows. So generally speaking, press seams toward the darker fabric to avoid creating a shadow on the lighter fabric. If pressing toward the lighter fabric is a must, then you want to trim the darker fabric seam allowance by about a sixteenth of an inch after the seam is sewn to prevent any shadows. You know, I've experienced this. I've gotten a quilt done and I see that little dark line and oh, it's like heartbreaking. So you want to make sure that you're, you know, paying attention to that as you're sewing. Exactly. So the next tip is to begin again. So if your seam allowance has been pressed the wrong way, you can return it to its original unpressed state and press the unit flat to remove the crease. And then you can allow the fabric to cool and then press the seam in your desired direction again, which I know from experience that if you press it in the wrong direction and you try to go the other way right away, it does not lie flat at mm -hmm. all. So just remember to press it flat to return it to its original state and then you can press the other way. Yep. Yeah, I've definitely uh, pressed things the wrong way many times. <laughs> So you want to keep your options open. When multiple seams come together in one area, press them open. This helps distribute the fabric bulk evenly, eliminating lumps and making the seams easier to quilt through. Another option is to clip into your seam allowance, a process which you distribute seam bulk by cutting the seam just inside the stitching line so you can press one seam in multiple directions. I also use that clipping trick when I am sewing pieces together and it accidentally pushes one of mm -hmm. my seams in the wrong direction and then I get like a twist in them, you can also clip your seam allowance there so it presses the right yeah. way. Oh yeah, I've definitely been there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tip number eight is to avoid crushing results. So this is especially useful if you're adding embellishments. So to prevent flattening, say like appliques, you wanna turn your applique block face down on a cloth towel for pressing. Also, if you're pressing a block with embroidery, you want to put down a pressing cloth and make sure you're lifting your iron straight up so you aren't distorting your embroidery stitches. Also, a little tip, that embroidery thread can run, the die can run, so you do not want to use steam when you're pressing things like embroidery. Um, but this actually brings up another question about pressing that we haven't addressed. Allison, do you use steam when you press? So I actually love to use steam, but I only use like traditional piecing methods. I don't really do any applique. Um, so I don't have to worry about that bleeding. Um, I just think steam gets rid of all those wrinkles and makes sure everything is flat. Again, I'm gonna swear by a wool pressing mat. I think you should get one. It'll make everything flatter. Um, but if you aren't using one, uh, yeah, I just think steam is amazing. I use steam only when I'm not doing things with bias edges. So mm -hmm. if I'm pressing like triangle squares or even sometimes really tiny pieces where I might 
like distort it and it would mm-hmm. really make a difference in sewing. I don't use steam, but otherwise I love steam. And I also use steam when my things aren't turning out exactly the right size. It's like use a little steam to kind of push it around <laughs> and nudge it in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> All sorts of good tricks. <laughs> So you want to make sure you're keeping it straight. Straight seams should be pressed from the side of the fabric with the iron parallel to the straight of grain. This helps avoid pressing tucks and pleats into the seam. So when I'm pressing, I like to have the right side of the block facing up, and then I kind of tend to hold the newly sewn piece somewhat up in the air um, and then kind of press the seam so that way I can see where the seam is and make sure it's not getting folded under. Um, And this just makes sure that everything is nice and flat and you're not getting any weird, you know, folds or mushy seams. Okay, the next tip is to follow the grain. So a bias seam should be pressed with the iron at a 45 degree angle to the seam and along the straight of the grain to prevent distortion. Also, when you're pressing bias seams, you want to be really careful not to push and pull the fabric or be too rough with your iron because that can really distort your pieces. If you're working with bias edges, you might also want to use a starch spray, which can help stiffen the fabric and help it keep its shape. Allison, do you use starch at all? I do. You know, like I said, when I'm preparing my fabrics before I cut them, I like to use starch so they don't, you know, stretch too much. But I also like to starch my blocks once once each individual block is complete. That way when I'm sewing it to another block or sewing sashing, I'm not going to get a lot of shifting. Yeah, I do the same thing. I usually only starch when I have a finished block to Mm -hmm. just keep it just really flat and have it shape. And who knows when I'll actually get to sew all the blocks (laughs) together. So I think it just is like keeps everything stiff until I'm ready. (laughs) Do you have a favorite starch spray you use? Um, I like to use Best Press and also Flatter by Soak. Um, I just, whichever one I grab first is the one I use. I think they both work really well. I'm obsessed with the fig smell Mm. of the Soak Flatter spray. It's my favorite one they have. Mm, So check it out. Sometimes I just like to use starch to make my sewing room smell (laughs) nice. And then we have one more bonus tip we just wanted to throw out is that not all irons are created equal. So I had been frustrated for years with just pressing and ironing because I was using a cheaper iron and it just was not doing the job and it was very frustrating. So spending a little time researching and spending the money for a better iron can really make a difference in that step of the process for you. Yeah, definitely. You know, I've had some irons that, of course, since I use steam, Sometimes they get, you know, drippy water and, you know, if you're using tap water, which you should be, you know, it could sometimes stain your quilt and, you know, just trial and error. I like to use a heavier iron. I just think it makes things even flatter. So it's a little bit of experimenting. Yeah. And finding the right one for you. But yeah, it can make all the difference. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much, Allison. Thanks. We'll be back after this quick ad break. Hey, folks, it's Hunter Lewis, editor-in-chief of Food & Wine. This fall, we're launching the new Food & Wine Classic in Charleston with our partners at Southern Living Travel and Leisure, and we want to see you there. This incredible three-day culinary experience will showcase the hospitality, food, drinks, and culture of one of our favorite cities in the country. Join us September 27th to 29th to learn more from iconic chefs, share a glass with innovative wine experts, and get to know Charleston with one-of-a-kind experiences curated by the experts at Food & Wine, Southern Living, and Travel and Leisure. Tickets are on sale now at foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. That's foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. See you down in Charleston. 
Welcome to Getting Social with Jess. I'm your host, Jess Ziegler. This week, I get to bring you my conversation with Tara Curtis. Tara is known, most known in the industry for creating the wefty needle. Her and her husband um, developed this device to assist with fabric weaving, so she talks a little bit more about the background of that in our interview. Um, but definitely check out her Instagram profile, at Wefty Needle, if you want to see some amazing fabric weaves. Also, Mr. Domestic, who I interviewed last week, is another prolific weaver, <laughs> and it's just um, a way for you to get a taste of what um, fabric weaving can look like and how it can be used, um, incorporated into other sewing projects, or just on its own. If this interview sounds a little bit informal or casual, it is. We've known each other for a long time, and I love how we met. I love telling people that we met at a bar in Des Moines, because that's what happened. Before Instagram, uh, we had an actual face-to-face conversation, getting to know each other, exploring common interests, which we both had quilting blogs at the same time, so how cute is that? We kept in touch over the years, and I am just so proud of what she has done, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. I have Tara Curtis with me, the founder of Wefty Needle. Thanks for being with me, Tara. Thanks for having me. Will you give us a short background of your maybe just creative life? Sure. I So I've always sewn either because I felt like I needed to. Like when I, I first started sewing, I um was refurbishing like secondhand clothes. I was on a really tight budget in college. Oh, actually, no. I started in high school refurbishing clothes because I couldn't find clothes that expressed my, you know, garage rock grunge persona I love that small town of Iowa yeah I I grew up in southwest Iowa and I there was just nowhere where I could find clothes that looked like something Kurt Cobain would wear yes you were misunderstood (laughs) I really was I was I didn't want to go to a Melvin's concert dressed in Pepe jeans and from the buckle (laughs) right exactly So, yeah, so I bought a lot of secondhand and then I would go home and kind of refurbish them. So back then it was definitely I was trying to express myself creatively through through sewing garments. And now I do more of that, more through like fabric weaving and sewing and and the things that I make now, maybe a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I get that. Yeah. Uh, So tell us when Wefty Needle came about and and what it is. So I, yeah, so I started fabric weaving. I did a little fabric weaving and it was just a basket weave. I had no idea what I was doing. I thought it was really cool um, and I didn't want to stop. I did it for a, um, one of those Instagram swap. Mm. It was, oh, it was the, it was an April, it was for April Rhodes fabric line. I, so I wanted to do something different for this swap. I incorporated fabric weaving into it. And a lot of people were really inspired by it. And I got a lot of new followers and a lot of interest. Um, and somebody reached out and said, you should try fabric weaving in this design. And what they sent me was a photo of a triaxial design. And then she sent me like notes from her class, but none of the notes made sense. I mean, there was no way to get anything (laughs) from this at all. So I just did a lot of research. And what I was able to figure out was that it was triaxial weaving. But there was, I literally, I scoured the internet because of course, I just want somebody to tell me how to do it. Yeah. 
and I can't find anything. I cannot find a tutorial. I can't find a video. I can't find anything. So I figured it out myself. My memory's a little fuzzy because I was nursing a baby mm-hmm. and so I was sleep deprived and really hormonal. But I was what I remember I put on Dark Matter, that show on Netflix, and I watched <laughs> that and I somehow figured it out. I did in the middle of it cry. And Donald tried to help me. And I thought he, in my memory, he helped me figure it out. But he has a way more reliable memory. And he's like, no, you figured it out on your own. And you, and you did it. And I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yes. All along. The power was inside. People to thank for that. And then I forgot. I promptly forgot everything. I was so hormonal and (laughs) so sleep deprived. So I went to the library and I got a book called hex weave and mad weave i think it's an introduction to triaxial weaving and i got that book and just went through and kind of practiced all of the different designs and techniques and and stuff then kind of just played from there so i played with different prints i played with different fabrics different like types of fabrics and materials and and then uh, my husband and I once sat down and figure out exactly how much fabric you need to weave in on a 30 degree angle so that I could figure all that out ahead of time and not waste any fabric or run out of fabric. So that was fun. Are your strips primarily just on the straight of grain or yeah. are you? Okay. Yeah, they're all straight of grain because the bias cut um, is too stretchy and bendy. Yep. Okay. And then your needle comes in or you get an epiphany. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I think it was probably my third weave was I decided to do half inch strips because it's, oh, it's actually a leftover fabric from the, what did you end up naming it? It was a, it was a song by Pavement, but then you ended up renaming that star quilt. Oh, right in the corners. Oh no. Um, star sighting. Yeah. Cause you helped yeah. test that and you, yeah. you used Allison glass yep. fabric. Yeah. Okay. The one of her first handcrafted, her yeah. first handcrafted line. So, and I wanted to use every last bit of that, and mm-hmm. I had leftover strips. So I was weaving with half-inch handcrafted strips on. I had figured out that the best way to weave was on a piece of SF101 interfacing that's fusible with the fusible side up, so that afterwards you just iron over it and it helps hold the strips together. And so I was using a darning needle at the time to to weave in the strips, but the darning needle would go into the interfacing. But with those half inch strips, I couldn't fit my fingers in there, and I wasn't gonna use a. Um, I have like bad like I don't know what's going on with my hands, but they hurt really bad. So using a safety pin would be like to have to open and close the safety pin each time and also having to like get it in there or whatever it just wasn't going to work so um I was frustrated I I threw my board across the room and like swore and my because my husband and I were just like drinking a beer together and like I was weaving and he was programming and he goes well what is the problem he jumped into like problem solving mode like men do and I was like I have searched the internet I've searched for a tool for this and I'm so frustrated there isn't one. The closest I could find was a heddle, but the hole, the opening was going in the wrong direction. It wasn't going to be much better. I don't know. So he had gotten a 3D printer and he said, well, what if I printed something for you? If you like tell me what exactly you need. So we designed it together and printed it on the 3D printer in our garage. I love that. Yeah. It was really just for me to make my life easier so he could program in, in peace. <laughs> 
without <laughs> flying objects going right. through the air. <laughs> yeah. But then it took over because so many people wanted them that he was printing needles at night and I was printing needles all day and sending I was weaving with out and like we had a wholesale order for like one of those mail order club things so we were do we had a deadline that was months later but in the meantime you know life gets in the way but we were literally printing needles like night and day to try to meet that and the demand during you know just in the regular my Etsy shop and we melted a wire in the 3d printer and it it was just obvious that we could not do this anymore like and he didn't want he's like I did not sign up for this (laughs) I want to play on my 3d printer that I built um give me my life back (laughs) yeah exactly and he's like we should he was always he's always been kind of like the driving force and I've always been kind of like the like very non-committal artist that's just like <laughs> no I just want to create me I express create, myself yeah I just want people to like me online so but he was like we should get them manufactured up that we could do that and and he was definitely the he designed the mold he did all of that work wow but we found a small batch manufacturer that was able to make a mold for us based on his design and until so we started getting them. It was weird to go from, I would say it took us like four months to print 60 needles. Months. I got in a couple weeks, I got my first order of a thousand. That's magic. Yeah. <laughs> I know. They were like, yeah, once we, once we get it set up and once you're on the schedule, it takes us like an hour and then we've got your, you know, 5,000 sets of needles. Unbelievable. Yeah. Efficiency. It surprises me to hear that you were so reluctant about the business side. I was actually going to put Donald's, so he designed it for the 3D printer. I was actually going to put the design on Thingiverse, like for free, for people to print it themselves. And he was like, are you ever going to sell this? And I was like, oh yeah, I could probably sell this. And he goes, then giving away the design is stupid. (laughs) I remember him saying that. Giving away the design of something you think you would sell is stupid. Like it would just be like the opposite of what you would ever want to do. But yeah, my thought process has never been business. I just, Mm -hmm. that's not something that comes naturally to me at all. Well, do you think that it is a personal development in a way to think of it that way now or like growing into the business side of yourself, maybe getting you out of your comfort zone? I think it's, I think one of the things that helped me think about things differently is I started reading and listening to Abby Glassenberg. Yes. Yeah. And she, so listening to her, it really helped me start thinking about different things, like, like how we assign our value mm-hmm. through our actions. And so it, it, of course, the way that she puts things is much more palatable than the way Donald puts things, but you know, <laughs> saying the same thing. I feel like that was, that was definitely something that was a, personal development for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To start thinking about if it is something you want to do as a business, how are you going to go about that? And maybe you should know what you're doing. It's putting the pieces together and learn and figuring things out and solving problems. And I can see the 
like can you do it it's a challenge it's yeah it's it can be it can feel kind of like a game or you know just sort of like let's see what happens if I do this or you know what happens if I do that I come from a very nonprofit background I did I was a counselor for a lot of years and so I feel like the one thing that I won't ever change is that I want to help other people if I'm given an opportunity to do that and I always want to um, operate from the perspective of, you know, kind of just take what I need and not, and never from someone else mm-hmm. sort of thing. Like, mm-hmm. so that's sort of my, those are my guiding principles. I'm much more interested in doing things in a way that I feel good about as opposed to just, you know, doing something to do it or. Mm-hmm. I get what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. You went to Spring Market, didn't you? In Portland? Yes, in Portland. Yep. So you, did you feel like at that point in time you wanted to do it because it was a bucket list thing or did you feel like you had to to make progress in your business or, or yeah what? definitely the latter uh-huh. um, it was time to either do it or or rethink where I was headed with things mm-hmm. like if I wanted to it wasn't necessarily a message to anybody else in the industry because I wasn't quite sure who the industry was or like what the message was I wanted to send it was yeah. more a message to me and maybe the people that had been following me and rooting for me like since the very beginning that okay Wefty is a legitimate business and takes itself seriously and wants to put quality products out there and get out to as many people as possible and that was the way to that I thought was the the only way or the best way to do that and I think that um, it was a really good choice for me it ended up it, it really did end up being a way to introduce Wefty to the sewing industry and I'm really glad that I did it it was a really positive overwhelmingly positive experience and a lot of work Mm -hmm. but it's what you had to do yeah yeah time. I can see where sewing, quilting, like you're kind of in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, quilt shops would love to sell more fabric, etc. and your products. Yeah. And also um, selling notions that go along with fabric weaving and also teaching a new technique and yes. inspiring people. So it really lends itself very well to maybe getting people to enter into sewing more. They're really inspired by this thing, but maybe they don't sew. I've had a lot of students that are like, I don't sew, I don't quilt, but I wanted to learn how to fabric weave. This seemed like something I could do. It doesn't involve a sewing machine if I don't want it to. So that's a big thing. You get people in for classes and it's also something people like to learn with help. And so if you Mm -hmm. have somebody into fabric weaving, like an employee or whatever, it's a great way to have a class and get some interest. And Yeah, I love it. Could you tell us about the, you have three new patterns. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Woven star variation tumbling triplets and woven diamonds and two of those the woven stars and the woven diamonds have projects that you can so it gives you it teaches you the weave but then also gives you ideas what you can make with the weave and like walks you through all the steps and then tumbling triplets is just the weave so you get like three different variants on this weave and then the other two patterns are Mr. Domestics Matthew Berdrow who's my friend Mm -hmm. I think I'm just gonna change his last name to Benson I (laughs) think say that I can spell it so easy for me (laughs) (laughs) so the other two patterns are the 
the Benson patterns. The Benson line. <laughs> like tumbling blocks and domestic illusion. And so if you want to learn those, then you can buy them. So I just edited them and formatted them is all, but he wrote them. And so you have recently taken a job at a quilt shop. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about your, um, how you came to that decision and how it's working in your life and how you feel about, you know, that versus, um, growing Wefty. So I um, definitely was starting to feel kind of isolated to put maybe to put it not like in the nicest terms I was going a little stir crazy at home and I would just get very frustrated about little things and sort of losing my way maybe just being this one woman operation in the basement of my house and we had moved from the west coast and relocated here in Wisconsin and I just wasn't getting out of the house very much you know I'd prefer not to anyway so I started thinking about how I wanted to work outside of the home but I also wanted to be still you know available for my kids and within school hours it would be the only time that I'd be able to work so I actually I think I asked the owner of my local quilt shop blue bar quilts if um she needed anybody and that kind of started the ball rolling and and so I started working there part-time so it was really to get out of the house really yeah just to do something different and it has been really good for me to to do that. I love that. Tell us about a little bit of the flavor there at Blue Bar Quilts. Is it a community of local quilters that you've gotten to know? Yeah, it's so the so Blue Bar Quilts is the modern quilt shop in Madison. So it's definitely right up my alley. Lots of bright colors and they're always, you know, the one thing that I really love about Gail Boyd, the um, owner of Blue Bar Quilts, is she supports local designers and local businesses. So I love her. I'm glad that you found that. What a great fit for you. It was interesting because I I joined the Madison Modern Quilt Guild when I first moved in the winter and she opened her shop the following spring. Mm. Yeah, because I think she knew I was moving to the area and she was like, (laughs) you know what? No. You know what I want to get closer to? You know, I'm going to open this shop and I'll bet in a, in 18 months to two years, <laughs> that woman will come work, you know, maybe, three to four days a week. Maybe she'll be my friend. A month, I should say. Yeah. Maybe you, maybe your face is on her vision board somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love this conversation and I'm glad that I got to know even more about you. Thank you for yeah. joining us. Okay, I'm back with the post-interview wrap-up. I need you to know that we talked for an hour, and it was very difficult for me to trim this down to a, you know, consumable, palatable length, but I did it. Um, I hope you got the essence of the interview and enjoyed what Tara had to say. Uh, She has the best personality in all of quilting there, I said it, or sewing and weaving, too. Let's just include them all. Until next time, I am at Threaded Quilting on Instagram. If you need to get a hold of me, have a beautiful week. Bye. We'll be back after this quick ad break. I'm here with Elizabeth Stumbo, the designer of American Patchwork and Quilting for Get Organized, a segment where we give storage tips for your sewing space. 
Elizabeth, what tips do you have to share with us today? So I'm here today to share part two of my storage hacks under $15. So if you remember or happen to listen to episode number 429, I shared organization ideas using everyday and affordable items found in the bathroom and beauty aisles. So today I'm here to share with you five more storage ideas found in the kitchen. So the first item is just a simple ice cube tray, which can be purchased for just a couple of dollars. And the individual compartments of the ice cube tray are a great great way to sort small items inside your drawers. So my favorite way to use this is to organize my extra sewing machine feet. You can use a Sharpie marker or one of my personal favorites, a label maker, (laughs) to label each individual compartment so you can keep everything organized and be able to find them quickly. And the compartments are also a great place to store some extra bobbins so they don't just roll around loose inside of your drawers. So the second storage solution can also that can also be found in the kitchen are large chip clips. So these handy clips are mostly used for keeping your potato chips from getting stale, but they can be also be used to help quickly keep larger stacks of cut fabric pieces together and organized. They're also helpful for keeping your blocks in order when you're piecing together your quilt rows. And if you happen to love sewing on the go, you can look for a portable lunchbox or a food container with a secured lid to carry your hand sewing projects in. A container with multiple compartments is especially handy for projects like English paper piecing. These containers are easy to throw into a larger travel bag and they can keep your supplies safe and sorted. Divided lunch trays are another great item to use for hand sewing or embroidery projects. You can use the sturdy tray to sort your embroidery flosses, small scissors, and needles, so everything is portable and easily visible. You can then carry everything from your sewing room to a cozy armchair, creating a temporary workstation so you don't lose any more scissors or needles in those chair cushions, which I've definitely been guilty of doing before. I once found a a needle that I had stuck in my couch like years oh, later no. <laughs> and I was sitting down and I kept going like what is poking me right now and I pushed down into the couch and saw a needle sticking out and I was like that has been there a long time. Not safe. <laughs> yeah you should definitely find yourself one of these lunch trays. I use one a lot at home just to like help make things easy carrying them back and forth mm-hmm. around places. Um, And then the last kitchen item is a simple utensil caddy. So these can be placed on the end of an ironing board or just on your sewing station to help kind of corral your everyday use items. So these are great for keeping things upright like your scissors, your rotary cutters, spray starch, and even rulers. And this just keeps everything handy and right within easy reach. So those are my five tips from the kitchen and I hope you found these household hacks helpful. If you give any of them a try or have any other organization tips for us that you'd love to share, we would love to hear about them. You can leave a comment in the podcast show notes or email your original tips to us at apqtips at meredith.com for a chance to have your tip published or even shared in a future podcast. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. I'm sure we're all going to be ransacking our kitchens now for these items and uh, using them in our sewing rooms. I'm now joined by Jody, the editor of American Patchwork and Quilting for Collector's Corner, a segment where we explore antique quilts and their history. So Jody, what are you sharing with us today? Well, today I thought I would talk a little bit about pincushions because I know that quilters are also collectors of other items besides just fabrics and quilts and like sewing notions and those kinds of things. So I thought I'd talk about pincushions. Um, each issue of 2019 American Patchwork and Quilting has had a pincushion pattern and each project has featured a different technique. So we've had wool applique, we've had mini piecing, 
machine applique with embellishing of buttons, uh, foundation paper piecing, embroidery, and English paper piecing. So while we were introducing you to maybe a new to you technique, then you also ended up with a functional item. Now, quilters tend to fall into two camps, pinners and non-pinners. Generally, I'm not a pinner, but I think that's because I make mostly mini quilts. So I'm show sewing pretty short seams. When I make larger quilts, I do tend to pin a little more. But how about you, Lindsay? Are you a pinner or no pinner? I usually only pin when I need points to align or when I'm sewing rows of a quilt together so that all my blocks are aligning. So even though I'm not a pinner, I do love pin cushions and I collect older ones. I also like to make them for gifts. So I thought maybe I'd give you a little history about pin cushions. Um, they became popular once pins and needles were mass produced during the middle of the 19th century. And prior to that, pins and needles were made by hand and they were made in a variety of materials and they were very costly. Because they were special, they were stored in small boxes and cases. During the Victorian era, era uh, pincushions became more popular as needlework and crazy quilting became all the rage. Needles and pins at that time were also becoming more affordable. Pincushions were being designed in a variety of shapes and they were being embellished with embroidery and glass beads. Now, pincushions were also being mounted onto other sewing tools, so like a sewing clamp. So this is something that would be clamped onto the edge of a table, and it acted as a third hand to keep the fabric taut while you were sewing. So by pressing the top and bottom tail together of a bird that's kind of set on top of this clamp, it opened the beak and it allowed the sewer to place the fabric in the beak, holding it securely while they were stitching a hem or maybe a seam. Now, on the head or the back of the bird was a velvet-covered pincushion, and that's where that was located. Now, these sewing birds or sewing clamps are really collectible right now, and they can fetch several hundred dollars at auctions. But I want buyer to be aware because there are reproduction versions that are being made right now, and they're also being made to look old. So if you see one for under $50, it might be a reproduction, so buyer beware. The Iroquois began making beaded pincushions to sell as souvenirs as early as the mid-1850s. And many of these examples that we find in museums today, they're in the shape of a heart or what they call multi-lobed. And we would commonly call that like a six or an eight petal floral. So those are the shapes that you most commonly see. Now, these uh, pincushions were really intricately beaded and they had small seed beads in the designs that radiated from the center outward and oftentimes they included stars. Now also we were seeing novelty pincushions that resembled shoes and animals and these were really popular when pincushions were first starting out in the late um, 1800s and the early 1900s and they were made with porcelain, they were made with metal, they had different kinds of materials that they were being made out of. There was a hole somewhere and a velvet fabric with the pincushion was either in the back of the animal or maybe in their mouth and that's the place where the pins were, were positioned. Now when somebody mentions a pincushion, the bright red tomato shape is probably the one that comes to mind to most people. Some of those also have a little strawberry that's attached with a thin green thread. Typically the tomato is filled with like wool roving or straw or sawdust and that was to prevent rust in the pens. And then the strawberry is filled with an emery and that was to clean and sharpen the pens. 
But why a tomato? <laughs> well, tomatoes were believed to ward off evil spirits and to ensure prosperity. So they were often placed in homes during the Victorian era, era on the mantle. Now, what did they do when the tomatoes were out of season and they would start, start to rot? Well, then people would make their own and they'd make them out of paper or fabric and then they would stuff them with sawdust or sand to keep a shape and they become a familiar sight in many homes. Now, where do you find vintage pincushions? Well, flea markets, thrift shops, online sources like eBay and Etsy, but also let your family and friends know that you're collecting. They may gift you one or let you know where maybe they've seen some on their searches and their travels. A little personal story. I'm in a small group that exchanges gifts once a year. And one year I um, was having trouble getting my gift made and the time was coming up and I'm somebody that kind of pushes things to the last minute. So my friend Lori that year received nine or ten newly made pincushions for me. She got an instant collection. I'm not sure how happy <laughs> she was about that, but it was really fun to explore different techniques. And um, she seemed excited when I gave them all to her, but it was fun to make all those different kinds of pincushions. Now, if you go to our website at allpeoplecold.com and you search pincushion, you can find lots of free patterns where you can make one for yourself or for a friend. I love hearing that history of the pincushions, Jody. I uh, was just talking to Elizabeth earlier on the show about how I use my couch as my pincushion. So it sounds like I need to get uh, maybe a red tomato one. That's right. Or go to the website or look in American Patchwork and Quilting. You can get the 2019 issues and you'll find a pattern there as well. Yeah, Jody actually designed the one that's in our December issue. So you can see her English paper pieced one in that issue that's coming out soon. Thanks, Jody. I'm now back with Allison for Quilting Changes Everything, a segment where we share stories of quilters making a difference in their communities. What is this week's story, Allison? All right, well, you might have seen this story make its way around social media a little while back, but I just thought it was so touching that I wanted to share it on the podcast. I got the following information online from Knox News. So quilting can be fulfilling in many ways, which we all know, from connecting to others, providing comfort, keeping busy, and more. For Army Staff Sergeant Andrew Lee, quilting has become a form of therapy. Andrew joined the Army in 1997, where he was deployed to Iraq twice. Upon his return, he continued to work for the Army as a truck driver. While at home, Andrew was struggling to cope with PTSD following his experiences in Iraq. And when he wasn't working, he was often at home playing video games and just kind of found himself in a zombie-like state. He had turned off all his emotions and was just stuck in a routine of working, coming home, playing video games, sleeping, and just doing it all over again. One day, he received a flyer in the mail from Joanne Fabrics advertising an upcoming quilting class. He and his wife decided to sign up so they could spend some quality time together, which had been lacking in their relationship. Andrew wasn't a complete stranger to sewing. He grew up with his mom sewing clothes for him and his siblings, but he had never actually sewn anything himself. While taking the class, the sewing instructor said, you must have learned to sew a long time ago because you're really good at this. So maybe there's something to be said for, you know, genetics. Um, all it took was that first quilting class to get Andrew hooked. He gained a newfound purpose in his life that helped him cope with his PTSD. He began making quilts for Quilts of Valor to give to other service members who struggled with the same anxieties and stresses that he had experienced. 
Andrew said, I'm addicted to this feeling of the gratitude that these people have. They actually feel that someone cares about them enough to take the time to spend and make a quilt and present it to them. Andrew has made and given 35 quilts to veterans through Quilts of Valor. A couple of the quilts Andrew has made depict the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima. If you go to our show notes, you can follow the article link to see those photos. The quilt is really something to behold. It's made of over 12,000 one-inch squares, and the finished quilt measures that 110 inches square. You can also see a photo of Andrew in his semi-truck with his sewing machine. Andrew said he's trying to bridge the gap between what civilians think about military versus what they see on social media and what's really going on with a veteran. He said, my whole goal in life is to make the world a better place. The thing is, it's best to start where it hits home the most, and that's the veteran community for me. And that's not to say that I'm only focused on veterans, because I know there's a lot of people that have anxiety and PTSD and depression who could benefit from quilting or sewing. I love that he was able to learn a new hobby to help deal with his own PTSD, but also give back to other veterans who he knows are suffering from similar things. Yes, it's, I mean, it's amazing when you've already, you know, gone through your career and you want to start something new and it ends up changing your life. It's really amazing. Thanks so much, Allison. all and thanks for listening keep in touch american patchwork and quilting is on facebook pinterest and instagram at all people quilt email us at apqpodcast at meredith.com resources for this week can be found at allpeoplequilt.com slash podcast and if you love the american patchwork and quilting podcast please subscribe on your favorite podcast app for free and don't forget to rate and review the show it helps other quilters find us Have a creative week.